morning, everybody. So today is a Smokey and the Bandit Sunday. Yes. You like it? All right. We got a long way to go and a short time to get there. That's what that means right there. So today we are in the Gospel of Luke. We are in a section that we are going to tackle 41 verses, 41 in one Sunday. And on top of that, 35 of them, very murky. Good times. All right. So a matter of fact, originally when I was looking at doing the Gospel of Luke, this was the one section that I'm like, man, what am I going to do when we get there? How am I going to tackle that? And I decided to treat it like a hard rain. I'm going to run as fast as I can through it and then get to shelter on the other side. That's, that's my plan for the day. Now, now, part of this, I want to be clear why this is a little bit of a challenge. When we look at this section uh, in fancy speak, uh, we call this eschatology or apocalyptic literature. Or for those who are more familiar with the term end time stuff, it's kind of one of those end time sections, kind of, all right? What I mean by that is different Christians kind of approach this particular section of Luke in different ways, depending on how they see the end times, and they look at history and all the different pieces. And so to look at this, it can be a little challenging. Now, that isn't to say that those topics aren't important, but it's just to say that when we look at those kinds of things, there is cryptic language, there's culturally conditioned language, there's different ways, like I said, that people want to approach the, the passages and look at it from different points of view. And so while in some ways it's tempting for me to treat this section like Nebraska, which is I just want to fly over it, I don't want to camp there, at the same time, I go, no, 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 this is valuable, this is important, but with this, I want to make sure we get the real intention. Because the real intention is not for us to dig through all of the stuff here in, in Luke and then try to get a newspaper or some news program and combine and figure out how this is fulfilling that and everything else. That's not going to be our mission. In fact, our mission today will really be to say, all right, in light of whenever Jesus returns, in light of whatever this passage is fully talking about, what is it that we are meant to do on a daily basis? And so, in fact, as we're going through this whole section, you're going to see some of the verses in yellow. You can let those things sink in because those are the things that we're just meant to do regardless of the details. We're to live in certain ways and do certain things because ultimately we want to honor Jesus in all that we do. Now, as we get underway, the good news for us is things start clear and then get a little complicated. And so we'll start with clear stuff and then we'll move into complicated and then from that hopefully find how we're supposed to live. And so right now I want to get ready for a time of prayer. As I do want to remind you that we have an app. In the app are notes that you can follow along with today. There's going to be some blanks that you can fill in as well on that. And so we're just going to move through this and we're going to see what Jesus has for us. But as we do that, like I said, I want to create some space for all of us just to settle our hearts, to have a moment of silent prayer. Then I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump right into the text for the day. Jesus, I want to pray that today, as we come together as your people or maybe even some with us today who would not consider themselves a follower of yours, but they're checking out what you teach and what you say. I pray for all of us then. We will see the magnitude of your words, that we don't get lost in the weeds of all the details, but we will see the big idea that you have come into the world, you are coming again to the world, and, and during that time there are things that we should care about, things that we should be focused on, 
and things we want to be really committed to when it comes to you. And so guide us today. Guide me today in a passage that some parts I think are really easy and clear. Some parts there's a lot of mystery. And that we would let the mystery stay mystery and we let the clarity be clarity. And in all of it that we would be obedient and thoughtful and seeking of you. And so Jesus, we look to you, we thank you, and we love you in your good and kind name. Amen. So when we were in Luke a couple weeks ago, uh, we had just wrapped up a showdown, right? So the religious right and the religious left had both come out against Jesus, and they were trying to trap him in some way, and both failed, right? He one-ups them, kind of poses questions to their questions, kind of shows that they're, they're broken and their insights are kind of flawed. And then from that, it kind of says, hey, here's a mystery you guys don't understand, that I'm both God and I'm a descendant of David, and you don't know what to do with that, right? So he does all of that. And from that, it kind of exposes what the religious system is in their day. And so when we pick up today in chapter 20, verse 45, what we see, if you're taking notes on our app today, is the very first thing, which is the beginning of the end. And it's the beginning of the end of how the religious system was instituted by God a long time ago, but the system has become corrupt. It's all about itself. Jesus is calling it out repeatedly, and now things are really coming to a head, which is why it's going to accelerate his execution at the hands of the religious system. And so we see the beginning of the end really kick off in verse 45, when it says, Then, when the crowds were listening, he turned to the disciples and he said, Beware of these teachers of religious law. I stopped there for just a second, because that's one of the first things we want to highlight. Like, okay, that's something he tells us. But I got to admit, as a teacher of religious law, I feel like I'm just shooting myself in the foot right now. It's like, wait, is that me too? No, it was them, because we're going to see what they do. He says, For they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful, respectful greetings as they walk into the marketplace, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at the banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property, and then they pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. So that was a problem in Jesus' day, and to be honest, that's been a problem throughout Christian history. It's still a problem today in some contexts where religious systems or denominations or whatever else, they take advantage of people, right? Pretending to be one thing, but it's really about them more than it's about the people they're to care for. And so that's always been a risk, but, but here it's particular what Jesus is getting at. And I want to put a pin in that idea of severely punished, because in a minute we're going to see how they are severely punished. In fact, part of this, Jesus has already spoken to a little bit. Remember when he rode into town? And as everybody's cheering, he's weeping. And he's weeping because he knows the outcome of the city. It's going to be destroyed. Well, that's being really spoken of here. Because the religious system is so twisted, the people are going to suffer in the future. So all of that's there. That's going to be the how that we're going to look at in a minute. What I want to look at is the why for just a second. Why is this going to happen? Right? Why does he say, watch out for these people? Don't listen to these people. Beware of these people. And the bottom line in all of it is that fundamentally, while they were supposed to represent God, their actions are way more like the devil. Right? Like, they're supposed to be the ambassadors of people that love God, love neighbor, uphold the scriptures, do the right thing, but instead, it's all about them, their ego, their power, their want. Right? So, religion... At its core, as far as what God had developed it to do, is that those leaders were to say, you know what, there are among us the weakest. 
the most needy. There are the widows and the poor and the outsiders that have nothing. And God has called us, according to Moses' law, to care for those people, make investment, defend them when nobody else does. But instead of defending them, they're taking advantage of them. They're robbing them, they're using them, and then they're getting what they want out of it in return. The only word I can think of that captures what that is is sinister. It's just sinister, which then it's no shock to me that when Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders, he says, you think you're sons of Abraham and our ancestors, but you're really kids of the devil. Like, Jesus didn't, like, kind of divide up his words in any kind of soft way. He was very clear. When religion abuses its office, it's absolutely sinister. So much so that he's looking at his guys saying, guys, don't even listen to these people at this point. They're that destructive. It's that problematic. It's that ugly. That's why I say it's the beginning of the end, because there's this dereliction of duty. Because if we looked at what the heart of religious leaders should be, right? If we go back to like the books of Moses, for example, um, we see that God calls like the Levitical priesthood to live under holiness. And when we define holiness, we can give it two definitions. One is just the definition like, well, it's uncommon, it's set apart, it's consecrated. I prefer a functional definition. What does it look like to be a holy person? And the definition I love to operate off of is holiness is love. Love displayed in mercy and justness with affection and fairness, right? So religious leaders are to be engaged in a type of love that loves their neighbor, loves their enemy, loves everybody in a real radical and raw way, in such a way that there is mercy bestowed on all and true fairness for all. But they're not doing that. It's all about loving themselves. It's about what's just for them. It's about what's in it for them. It's about what feeds their ego. And so it's not love of God and love of neighbor. It's not about the widows, the orphans, and the outsiders. No, it's about power and wealth and safety. And so Jesus is peering into their hearts, and he sees while they look authentic on the outside, there's complete authenticity on the inside. And that kind of leads to then an event that happens at the temple, this, this little kind of vignette story that occurs. It's the second thing in your notes. It's the contrast of godly sincerity versus religious systems. Because God's looking at the heart, right? They, that's the thing he cares about. But the religious leaders, again, they've lost all of that. And so a scene unfolds that captures the difference. It says in verse 1 of chapter 21, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. But then a poor widow came, and she dropped in two small coins, like these copper shillings that have just been pounded flat. They're not even attractive. They're just kind of crude because they have such little value. And yet Jesus says, they tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than the rest of these religious people for they have given a teeny part of their surplus but she poor as she is has given everything that she has and so you can envision the scene right here's people coming in big wad of cash pulling it out of the robe like flipping it out right throwing in a couple of 20s calling it good maybe somebody rolls in 200 
but they're pulling out of a roll of 2,000, right? So, so in comparison, it's like, yeah, you gave a lot, maybe 200 to 2,000. That's like 10%. That's a big deal. But, but hey, listen, you got a ton left over. You got plenty of cushion, plenty of safety. Uh, this woman, though, all she has is these two crude slabs of, of copper. There's nothing. That's her life investment in savings. And she plops that right there in the box. Says, I'm giving it to the temple. I'm giving it to God. See, we all know when we read that story, we instantly know what the message is. And at the core for this woman, she is faithful. It's an act of faith that is literally full. She's like, God, I'm trusting you with my tomorrow. I'm trusting you with my my food tomorrow, my place to live tomorrow, my life tomorrow. I love you so much, I'm giving it all away. Now, I want to be clear. I don't believe what this passage is having to, to demand of all of us is that we all say, all right, here's what we do today. There's a box out there. Put your 401k in there on your way out the door. Put all of your investments in the box and walk out the door. I don't think it's requiring of that of us. I think what it is reminding us of is that all of our security, our hope, and our, our tomorrow should be in God's hands, and we should trust him with that. That's true. But, but the heart you see in her is just, I'm trusting God. Where the religious leaders that claim to trust in God, those who are supposedly the, the denizens of faithfulness, are like, no, no, I gotta keep my security blanket. I gotta keep a lot of this for myself. I'm gonna give out of my surplus, but I'm not gonna give anything sacrificially. No, we're not gonna do that. See, what I, what I love about this woman is actually the, the two things. One is just the fact that she has this radical faith. We would even say reckless. I think a lot, like Dave Ramsey would tell her she was dumb. What are you doing? Giving all your money away is dumb. That's what he'd tell her. Any financial investor would say that. But she's like, no, I'm investing it to God's stuff. That's the first thing I think is really amazing. The second thing, as far as her faithfulness, is she's giving the money to a temple system that, ready, is corrupt. It's corrupt. We worry about that sometimes. Well, what if I give my money to a thing that's sinful and uses it in dumb ways and bad ways and reckless ways and it's all about them and everything else? And I go, yeah, God's aware. And yet if you give it because you just love God and you want to be faithful, he's like, man, you get the dividend of that. I, you get credit. If they use it in sinful ways, I will judge them for it. So it's that interesting thing of you can do something faithfully, people use it in unfaithful ways and God says, I commend you. But, but boy, I, I'm going to damn them. Because that's what Jesus is saying here, right? He sees the woman, and she receives praise. He sees the religious people and leaders, and he basically is condemning them for their actions. And so all of that happens at the temple. So Jesus is there, his disciples are there, the story unfolds. They see this amazing display of faith, and then, in essence, faithlessness faith of a widow, the faithlessness of those who claim faith as religious leaders. And this moment of temple example then becomes a temple tour. Right? So the disciples are at the temple. They start looking around at everything. They're, they're just amazed by what they see. These guys come from Galilee. They're small town guys. Now they're in the big city seeing this major place. So it says in verse 5, the disciples began to talk amongst themselves about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. Now, to understand this temple a little bit, you, you have to understand how they see it in their world. For them, this location is like the White House and the Capitol Building and the National Archives and the Smithsonian and, and, and the you know, Supreme Court. Like All of that is like in one place for them. 
So when they think about their identity as a people and their heritage as a people, that building is the place. So way back, God said, here's a tabernacle, which is a tent, but eventually you guys are going to build a building. David kind of starts gathering supplies. Solomon wraps it up, builds the building. Eventually that building is sacked by the Babylonians, but it's reestablished under Herod the Great. And for them again, it's like, yes, this is the greatness of Israel. And with that, the greatness of who they are as a religious people. So it symbolizes how their religious system is God's gift to the planet. And in that, at the heart of this temple is the idea that God lives in that space and he dwells among his people. So all of that is in there, right? So it's just heritage, history, nationalistic identity, religious kind of fervor and passion, and God is amidst the people. So all of that is there when they're looking at this building. And then Jesus says something that would be shocking in light of all of that. He says, but Jesus said, the time is coming when all of these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left atop another. Now, Jesus has already hinted at this, right? Like I said, he rode into town, he's weeping over the city, but that was personal and private. Now he's telling his core group that everything we hold dear, everything we bank on, everything that is iconically ours is gonna be utterly destroyed. Now, here's what I think the irony is in this, right? So let's keep our history before us. The people long for a coming Messiah who would do what? Who would conquer the Romans because of their sin. Now what you have is the Messiah has shown up, and instead of saying he's going to conquer the Romans, what he's basically going to be saying is, uh, no, we're going to be siding with the Romans, and they're going to conquer the Israelites. You wanted the Messiah to come to wipe them out, but rather the Messiah has come, you rejected him, and they're going to wipe you out. That's how dark and deep their religious sin really was. And the question becomes, well, why then? What's the lesson we should learn? Well, I'd say they didn't practice what they preach. They didn't live a Bible that they claimed. And they didn't accept a Messiah that they sought. See, Jesus says something in the Gospels that I think is really important for all of us and certainly for them. He says, to much that is given, much is required. And if you look in the book of Romans, for example, a little letter that Paul wrote uh, in chapters 9 through 11, he talks about this. He's like, God gave Israel everything, right? He gave them like added frontline seats or front row seats to who he is and what he was doing. He gave them the, the Bible and he gave them the covenants and all of this. And so much was given to Israel and they exploited it. They took it for granted. And they didn't want to be a light to the Gentiles. It was all about them. And if anything, they just want to see the Gentiles beaten. And so because of that, this reveals their heart. And for the leadership, they were using the system more than they were serving the system. And it had gone on for so long and become so bad that finally Jesus says, you know what? God's just gonna just wipe it clean. He's gonna go full on like Raiders of the Lost Ark on this place. Just gonna drive it into the sand. Well, naturally the fellows are like, whoa, when's this gonna occur? So verse 7, teacher, when will all of these things happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to take place? Now, this is where it gets murky, all right? So, so far, pretty easy to read. But now it gets a little challenging. And, and like I shared earlier, different Christians approach this section in different ways. 
And so I'm going to do my best to be as fair as I can to try to approach it in a way that I, I think it makes some sense uh, or some clarity is brought forth in this. And it seems, as best as I can ascertain, Jesus is going to give two answers, which sounds exactly like Jesus. You ask him one question, he gives you more than one answer, right? That's how he rolls. And, and so in one sense, he's going to give an answer that's very immediate. Like, they're going to hear it, and it's for them. It's their generation. It's their time. They will experience these things that he's talking about. But he's also going to give another answer embedded in here that's probably way in the future from them, right? So a little bit like the candy, it's now and later, all right? That's what Jesus is going to do. It's a now and later idea that's all in play. And so some things are soon, right? They're going to experience it, and some things are down the road, but they want to know, when's Miley Cyrus rolling in on a wrecking ball and wiping out the place? That's their question, right? And so we're going to deal with this first by looking at the near future. Number three in your notes, the near future. Roughly 30 AD to 70 AD. That 40-year window from the time Jesus started his ministry to this time when the city is disrupted, the temple is destroyed. That 40-year window, which again, irony being God loves to work in 40-year cycles. It's another 40-year cycle. Shouldn't surprise us. But, but what's going to happen in that 40-year cycle? Well, Jesus begins to teach, and don't forget, the yellow things in there are things that all generations can learn from and probably do in light of this. Verse 8, he says, Don't let anyone be misled or mislead you in any way, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, I am the chosen one, I am the Christ, and they'll say the time has come. But don't believe them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but notice, but the end won't follow Immediately, So right there, you already see kind of the stratification of there's going to be some things that are soon, but the end isn't yet. So you see this divide. But initially, he's addressing them. Here's stuff that's going to happen in the next few years. There's going to be people that come forward and say, I'm the chosen one you've been looking for. I can stick it to the Romans. I can drive them out. I can beat them right? Because that's what they thought about a Messiah. They weren't thinking of like supernatural salvation of souls in a Messiah. They wanted somebody that was going to win for them nationalistically. So there's plenty of people that did rise up and claim they could do that. Jesus like, when that happens, don't listen. Things are going to get bad, but listen, don't, don't fall victim to that stuff. He says, but stuff is going to happen in the next few years. Verse 10, so then he added, nation will go to war with nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues in many lands and there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. Now Tacitus, sorry about that, Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, he writes about this particular period. Not a Christian, anything like that, but he records a lot of the history during that period from like 60 AD to 70 AD. And when you look at what he records, it was a time of tremendous upheaval in the Roman Empire. Right? So the empire was starting to get into its kind of waning days. There was civil wars all over the place. Rome was kind of in shambles as far as politically speaking. This is the time of Nero. Eventually, Nero takes his own life toward the end of that decade, creating all kinds of havoc for different emperors to rise up and be ex executed and killed. And it's just a mess, right? So, so Jesus is already hinting at what is going to be true just 40 years ahead, right? That the whole empire is going to be feeling these birth pains and these problems and all the world is just going to be sort of falling apart. But then Jesus says in verse 12, before all of this occurs... There will be a time of great persecution 
You will be dragged into the synagogues and into the prisons, and you will stand trial before the kings and governors because you are my followers. See, part of this, again, kind of gives us a grounding that says he's talking to them for their era because he says you, right, he's talking to them, and you are going to be drugged into synagogues, and you're going to be persecuted for your faith. Some people want to say, no, this is purely a future thing yet to happen. I'm like, there must be a big Jewish revival, and synagogues are everywhere in the future then because... Like, if you're all drug into synagogues, they must be all over the place. And I'm like, there might be a couple in the area. There's just not many, right? So this is back then for them. It's what they're going to face. But Jesus wants them prepared that, you know what? You're going to be hated. And, and, and when we look at the history of this from like 30 AD to 70 AD, that's really when Christianity just got punked in the region. The Jewish people hated them. Eventually, the Roman people hated them. Nero hated the Christians. But after they got past 70 AD, there was still persecution, but things began to change and the empire began to be formed by Christianity. And by the time of Constantine, Christianity is decriminalized. And by the time of Theodosius, Christianity becomes the religion of the empire. So it was really in that first few decades that the bulk of persecution was widespread and happened. And then after 70 AD, it begins to alleviate. It was still there, but it began to trend in other directions. There was pockets of of hardship, but boy, it really began to change. So, so Jesus, again, is just helping his followers understand that all of this, when it begins to happen, is going to be hard, and it's going to be frightening, but it's also an opening. He says in verse 13, but this will be your opportunity. When you're drug in, when you're mistreated, when you're maligned and slandered, this will be an opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges that are against you. I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. So it's that reminder that, you know what, yes, it'll be bad, but it's also an opportunity for good. So don't lose heart. God can use even the worst of circumstances for great purposes. But it's still painful. I mean, listen to the depth of the pain. He doesn't just say, hey, you're going to be hated by people on the other side of the road who barely know you and just decide to malign you. He says, no, even those closest to you, your parents, your brothers, your relatives, your friends, they will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. What I appreciate about this, it reminds us when we reflect on this and then the history that came out of this, that there were people willing to say, I follow Jesus, and to take their lumps with love, with grace, with compassion, with courage, with faith, and from that, it's a heritage passed to us. That first generation could have said, whoa, too much. First time they're drugged into a synagogue or before a judge. I recant. I don't know him. I'm done. Could have pulled a Peter, every one of them. But they didn't. Like, no, I understand I could perish for this, but I'm not going to perish in my soul. And that's what he says. He says, some of you will die physically, but not even a hair of your head will perish eternally. They just were reminded of this. They believed this. They leaned into that, and they continued to be proud of Jesus even when the world was against them. So paradoxically, while they cannot perish because they are faithful, the system that is before them is very much going to perish. Verse 20. He says, and when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of the destruction has arrived. 
then those in Judea must flee into the hills and those in Jerusalem must get out of the city, right? And those in the country should not come into the city. For those days will be the days of God's vengeance and the prophetic words of the scriptures will be fulfilled. So again, instead of God and Messiah wiping out the Romans, God and Messiah will end the Jewish rule. And those tensions from, like I said, 60 to 70 AD were pretty widespread. So to understand what was going on in the Jewish world, they were just really tired of Rome. They were sick and tired of the fact that none of their messiahs were getting Rome dealt with. So there was just a lot of insurrection, a lot of terrorist activity against the Romans on the part of the Jews. And so it just kept escalating through the 60s. And so finally you get these four different moments of siege, right? So different alleged messiahs are saying, we can get them. And they keep failing, but they keep trying and everything else. And so finally, Rome gets sick of it. And in 66, they send Celtus as the first one to go circle the city and deal with this, this stiff-neckedness from the Jews. And he goes and he fails. And so the Jews actually best him, and he goes back to Rome. Nero is totally furious about it. And so next he sends Vespasian. And he sends Vespasian in 67 AD. And Vespasian comes and he surrounds the city and he's going to sack the city and show that Rome is in charge of the Jews. But before he does that, Nero decides he's tired of life and he takes his own life. And so Vespasian goes back to Rome and becomes the emperor. But that's the second encirclement of the city. Then in 68 AD, the Idumeans, they are a conscripted group of forces. They circled the city for the third time. And during that time, about 8,500 Jews are, are killed in that occupation, but they don't completely take the city. And then finally, in 70 AD, Vespasian sends his son Titus to the city. And Titus encircles the city, and he utterly destroys everything. It's brutal, barbaric, it's inhumane. In fact, if you look up Josephus, just go home, type in Josephus, Wars of the Jews, Siege of Jerusalem, he was a Jewish historian that wrote for the Romans, and he catalogs everything that happened. And when you read his catalog, it doesn't surprise us that Jesus says this, how terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. For there will be disasters in the land and great anger against the people. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives into all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles has come to an end. We're currently in the period of the Gentiles. So it started in 70, it goes on into the future. We don't know the end date, but this is sort of the period of the Gentiles right now, as best as we can understand it. But that period entered in with this destruction. So Jerusalem is under siege for 143 days. What, what uh, Titus does to, to, to really deal with this is he encircles the city and he encloses it like a tomb. So there's no food in the city, there's no fresh water in the city, but there's tens of thousands of people living in there. So now they're left to kind of contest like, like survival of the fittest, right? And so every day, hundreds, thousands begin to die because they don't have food, they don't have water. It gets so desperate that Josephus writes about mothers who begin to consume their own children after birth because they're starving to death. People are just killing each other in the city for whatever they can get. And then you can't deal with those bodies. They're just all piling up in the city. So you have disease and just every terrible thing you can imagine. Now, some try to escape the city. And so what they would do 
as they'd sm- swallow like gold coins or jewels or whatever else because they know once they're out, they gotta have something to survive on. Well, the Romans figured this out really quick. So when they would catch people that escaped the city, they would just split their bellies open alive and then they would just dig out whatever they could find and they would leave them to die. And then once they were dead, they would put them on crucifixion devices, right? Just crosses all over the place. Thousands of people on crosses all outside the city as people are dying and killing each other inside the city. And by the time the scene's over, the estimate is about 600,000 total people are dead. See, Jesus is speaking to that and saying the time of the Jews will be over in catastrophic ways. And it goes back to what he wept about Had they accepted their Messiah, they would have accepted the way of peace. They would have embraced how peace is forged and said, they said, no, we don't want peace. We want war with Rome. We're going to best them. We're going to beat them. We're going to take them. And instead, they were taken by Rome. But now the time of the Gentiles has happened. The light goes out to the Gentiles. The Gentiles carry the light of the gospel. And that's the book of Acts. That's, again, as I said earlier, Romans 9 through 11. And that's like phase one of the kingdom. So it's like the kingdom began with the coming of Jesus. It kind of inaugurates its finish at 70 AD, and then it begins to move forward, and we're all living in phase one. Phase two is to come when Jesus comes again, and it's a whole new amped up kind of thing. But in the meantime, we are living in phase one. But Jesus said that isn't the full end, right? Remember we talked about that? He says, no, the end isn't fully there yet. And so cryptically, he kind of speaks about this other end, the end at the end, and that's the far future. So sometime between 70 AD and, I don't know, sometime in the future, when we're all living in Elonville on Mars or something, right? I don't know when this time will be. But when the time of the Gentiles comes to a close, well, that's when the end of this world as we know it comes to a close. Verse 25, he says, And there will be strange signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and the strange tides. You're like, hey, that's climate change or something. All right, so people will be terrified of what they see coming up from the earth, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. And when all of these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation draws near. This is alluding to this section in the book of Daniel that's come up before, and we've talked about it in Luke, but one day the Son of Man comes, and he's on the clouds, and it's this finale. And and for the Jewish people, what was so hard is they actually thought that that would come in the first coming. But it seems that it comes in the final coming. There's like a first coming and a final coming. We celebrated the first coming last week with Easter, and we're all waiting for a final coming that will emerge into this world. Now, at this point, I know some of us would be like, well, can we camp out in that thing to come, Matt? What's the mark of the beast? Who's the Antichrist? When's the rapture? What about the seven years of tribulation? Well, those are interesting topics, but I don't think that's the focus of why Jesus says this or Luke writes this. The reason is not to satisfy our curiosity about all the future things, but rather to prepare us for our responsibility. And so that's number five. Right living for life near or far into the future. Whatever it is, there's right living. And so he says, he gave them this illustration. Notice the fig tree, or any other tree for that matter. When the leaves come out, you know that it's the beginning of summer. In the same way, when you see all these things take place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. And that's that phase two kingdom. So phase one began in the first century, right? I I consider the start of the kingdom like a NASCAR start. Right? So from 30 to 70 AD, it's like it's getting ramped up. 
right? And then finally at 70 AD, the temple is destroyed and boom, the kingdom's off and running and we're all a part of that whole thing. So kind of starts off with Jesus's ministry and then really capstones its start with the fall of the temple. And some people go, well, why did he take 40 years to ramp up the, the first phase of the kingdom? Well, I don't really know, to be honest, but I have a suspicion, at least this is kind of my guess. And my guess is that when Jesus was alive, he talked about the fact that the religious leaders were going to destroy his body, and he said, my body is a temple. In fact, my body is the temple, and it will be destroyed, and three days later, rebuilt. And they're always like, ah, what are you talking about? Your body's the temple. That's dumb. But in fact, they crucified Jesus, and in doing so, they crucified the essence of their temple that day. And when he died on that Good Friday, it says inside the physical temple, there was this big curtain. It was torn from top to bottom. And that represented the fact that God's no longer living in the house. He's out. This building is not going to be the way it's done. But then for this pretty close to 40-year span, he shows mercy to Israel. You guys can still turn. You can change. You can embrace Jesus as your Messiah. You can take the way of peace. Your doom doesn't have to come. And so he goes on for, for a generation waiting for them to turn. But then finally, after that time, he's like, you destroyed my temple, who was my son. And I left that temple that was your building, and now it will destroy your temple because it's not mine. And so it comes to a close, and then with that, the kingdom is unleashed into the world. Therefore, he says in verse 32, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words, they will never disappear. Now again, I, this is kind of a tough one for me because it's like he's talking about this generation and it's like, well, is it that one 2,000 years ago or is it some future one? The best as I can understand is he's kind of talking to both, right? So that first generation would see certain things and then there's a final generation and they're gonna see some of these other things. But whatever the generation, wherever you find yourself, there's still things to do. There's still ways to live. And so we may not have the right answer to this passage, but it doesn't matter because we just need to live right regardless of whatever the answer is on what are the times and seasons and days and everything else. We may not be able to discern that, but we do know that according to verse 34, we need to watch out. He says, don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. And don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape the coming horrors and to stand before the Son of Man. Here we see some don'ts and we see some do's. And since the beginning of this message, we've been seeing these little pieces of do's and don'ts. And so I just want to remind you of those really quick as we are closing. The first is don't be like religion or it was all about themselves. Rather, be sincere like the widow where it was all about God. Second, don't be misled by false Christs or representative of the, representatives of the true Christ in false ways. He says either one of those is destructive. Third, he said, be ready to be ready. And what he meant by that is, hey, don't plan your speeches for when people say, hey, why do you believe? He says, you don't have to plan your speech, but what you do need to do is be so aligned with Christ in your relationship that it gives him the space to give wisdom through you. You're suited to receive the message that he can implant into your heart when need be. Fourth, stand firm when you're pressed to sit down. Right? He says, stand up. Don't be ashamed. Be brave. Fifth, he said, stand up and look up. Be courageous and be hopeful. 
when this world looks to be falling apart. Sixth, he said, watch out that you don't get bottled down in this life with too much play or too much worry. Both of those things are distractions. But instead, he says, stay alert, pray for strength, and prepare to stand before Jesus. Right now, I want to bring up the worship team. Because it's that last part there. I mean, all of it matters. All seven things that he tells us to be aware of, to focus on, to care about, all seven of those matter. But it all comes down to one day we're all going to stand before Jesus, right? And he says, that's the thing you want to be prepared for and ready for. And and as I've shared before, I, I think there's different kind of tribes that relate to Jesus. There's some that say, I, I wouldn't call myself somebody that follows Jesus. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. Uh, but Jesus says, one day we're going to have a face-to-face. Right? Like, that's just in the cards for every one of us. And so, we want to be ready for that day. Right? And then there's those of us who, who follow Jesus, and we're still going to stand before Jesus, and we're going to have a face-to-face, and he's going to be like, how did it go? Did, did, you, did you live out what I called you to? Were you different than what religion modeled? Because again, that's on the final exam. He's like, remember on the final exam, I'm going to ask, uh, you know, I was poor, and I was needy, and I was hungry, and I was in jail, and when you did things to them, you did it to me. Like, do you remember that? And we're going to be able to say, yeah, I did that, or I didn't do that. Like, all of that is important in how we think about standing before Jesus one day. So right now, today, maybe there's some of you that you go, I'm not a Jesus-following person. I wouldn't call myself a Christian, but I'm feeling the pull to that because I know I'm going to stand before him. If that's you and you go, I want to follow Jesus, that starts with a prayer that says, Jesus, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my own way, my own thing, and yet you've given yourself for me. You give life to me. Give me life in you, and I want to follow you. You make that your prayer in your way, sitting there in your seat. He hears that, and you begin to walk with him. And then there's those of us that claim Jesus. But, you know, maybe we're in different stages of where we're at developmentally and growing, and we just go, I, I just want to give it all to you. I want to be like that widow that just said, you can have everything, and I want to follow you with passion and conviction and humility and dependency. And Jesus, just reset me today, or give me new energy and juice. Give me strength to endure, as Jesus said. Like, maybe that's your prayer today. I don't know what it is, but I want to give us all just a, a space here to pray. Maybe it's to pray to follow Jesus for the first time. Maybe it's to get recalibrated with Jesus anew. Maybe it's just for, again, more juice in the tank. Keep going after it. Let's go ahead and just take a moment here of silence. Jesus, I know I'm looking to you to always give me a sense of perspective, your heart for the world, your focus, that instead of looking at everything we saw there and and it being like, whoa, that's freaky, or that's terrifying, or that's concerning, instead we go, you know what, what it reminds me of is to, to look, to pray, to seek, to be strong, to trust you, to be synced up. Help me to do that. Help us to do that. For those who maybe are beginning a walk with you, help them to do that. For those who have a walk with you, help them to get even stronger in that. May we be truly faithful in what it means to be holy, that we will be displayers of love and mercy and justice 
for the world around us because that is what you've done for us. We thank you, Jesus. We praise you this day in your good name.